From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. For a look at how inflation hits families in the Grand Valley, we visit a food bank and meet the woman who makes sure volunteers treat people with dignity. I do not want you throwing my cans and disrespecting my can of corn because I feel that's disrespecting my clients. Some people have a lot of hard things they have to go through and I don't want them to have the hard thing here. Then, is the state on track to release gray wolves on the western slope? The wolf issue is one that can divide, but this is something that I think we can find some common ground and try to help both wildlife and people thrive here in Colorado. And winemaking in the face of climate change. We're seeing an earlier harvest because of the heat. It's advancing ripening, and it's also creating lower alcohol wines. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Minas Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction, where I'm reporting this week. And we'll begin with a picture of inflation and hunger here in the Grand Valley. A picture as well of generosity. I visited a food bank in Clifton, a little east of here. It's based at a church, and its tireless executive director is Jackie Feaster. Yes, like the word feast, which I'll ask her about a little later. Jackie, thanks for meeting us. Thank you. I'm so happy. We are standing next to a refrigerator that is teeming with fruits and vegetables. I see sweet potatoes. I see olives, lots of bagged lettuce. Food pantry food doesn't have to be sort of shelf-stable junk. Correct. We really want to empower people, and empowering them with good food is the beginning. Fresh stuff. And I'm thinking of the bounty of the Grand Valley in terms of agriculture. Is that where a lot of this comes from? Multiple places, but yes, we are blessed. Our cooler is full of fresh peaches and apples and pears already this year. And our grocery stores with the Grocery Rescue Program helps us with a lot of food stuff. Grocery Rescue. So this is food that the grocery stores can't sell, but it's still good. Correct. Instead of throwing it in the trash the way so many people do. So it's very good, as you can see, and this will all go out um, in the next couple days. And we just go to the stores and pick it up and weigh it. Limes and peppers and yogurt. I, I wonder, before we talk about the need in Mesa County these days and your ability to respond to it, could I ask you about your own upbringing? Because I understand that your family struggled How does your own experience help you understand the people you serve? So it's interesting, yes. I grew up um, struggling with a great family life and great love, but I chose a rocky path when I was younger. It empowers me now because everybody can change their lives and their world. Um, No matter what they're going through, I was a, a young teenage mom with issues and the same thing that a lot of kids go through, and but I chose not to stay there. So I'm very passionate about loving every one of my clients 
and providing the fresh stuff, working hard. Working hard? I mean, you're working on a holiday. We're recording this on Labor Day. I wonder if some people come to a food bank, a food pantry, and feel a little bit of shame, and if that's something you have to help them deal with. Um, yes, so people do have shame coming and embarrassment coming, and that's what I want to be able to love on them and really let them know that it's okay. It's just a moment, and we've all been there in a situation. And yet there are probably people who must rely on this longer than they'd like. I mean, people do. Groceries are expensive, and life is hard. We never turn anyone away. No matter what or why or when they were here last, they will receive food and love. You mentioned food prices. I wonder how that affects the people who rely on you and how it affects your ability to get the food to distribute. Uh, the food cost is extraordinary, as we all are facing in our own homes. Okay, so toilet paper. We all have our toilet paper deal. So last year, I spent $2,300 on toilet paper. So January to June of this year, I've already spent $2,000. In other words, in six months, you are spending on toilet paper what you spent in a whole year last year. Correct. And that, that goes across the board with everything I purchase. But I understand those higher costs, while meaning you have to shell out more money, it's not affecting what you're able to distribute. Is that true? Correct. That just means I have to write more grants to find more funding, and I go to community support for more funding, and I just make awareness more. So it's just a little more work for me, but the clients still get as much amazing food. What is the need? How has that grown? So the need has grown. So last year, the first six months, to this year, the first six months, we are already over the households that we served by over 1,000 and over 2,000 individuals. So six months last year to six months this year were way over last year. What are the stories they tell you about why they're here? They just can't seem to make it. The working poor, um, a lot of families are living together because they're having a hard time making it. Just like a lot of people are struggling with food costs and gas prices. So they just have to come here because they cannot short their rent bill, but they can short their grocery bill. And so they come here so I can fill in the gap. When you're struggling, you can't write a smaller check to the utilities. So food becomes the place that people make those kinds of economies. Correct. That's where the cut is made for the households. What have you learned about yourself doing this work? Um, to see how things are provided just when I need them at the nick of time. I What's an example of that? The example of that is we may not have eggs and we're all like, we're not going to have eggs today. And our grocery rescue shows up with eggs that we can give away. And so in my mind, that's a faith thing and a spiritual thing. Do you find that to be a modern miracle? I do. I see God every day down here from the volunteers that work tirelessly down here, from people crying at my door and telling me they love me, from seeing someone in a grocery store and they come up and thank me when they don't have to. And they might be ashamed to know me, but they're happy to say, Jackie, I'm so thankful for you. What do you need right now? Um, I, I can always use frozen meats from stores, and then I really just need financing. We're doing expansion projects so we can open back up and have clients come in. 
so I can purchase these things. Because the stores sometimes have shortages and it's difficult for you to get, but I have ways to get food. You have ways to get food. Yes, I do. I'm a trickster, you know. What do you mean? Give me an example of one trick you've developed. Well, um, even just with the local produce that we can get, I am grateful to know Cocopelli Farm Market and Palisade, and I can always go there and say, I don't have any fruit today. What can you give me? And they'll say, pull around back. And so those are modern miracles. Those are God things. Those are tricky things. Now, you mentioned that you hadn't had people coming in like you used to. That was a function of the pandemic, that you were sort of doing carry out, if you will. And you've begun to transform back to the idea of welcoming people under the roof. Yes. Um, during the pandemic, we had to close the pantry due to food storage issues and then some of the pieces of the pandemic. But we never missed one single day of being opened. And so now we're opening back up in the fall as a choice pantry inside, but we're still going to continue the drive through model. A choice pantry. Choice feels really important. It feels almost empowering, maybe. That is correct. It is very empowering for a mom to be able to come in and choose what kind of green beans she has to give to her children. Her children may like cut green beans instead of French cut. And if she can choose that, that could be amazing. And it would mean nothing to you and I, but it would mean everything to her. So they'll be able to have the choices and the dignity to shop. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Jackie Feaster. She runs the Clifton Christian Church Food Bank near Grand Junction here in the Grand Valley. And we are getting a picture of hunger, of need, but also of bounty in this part of Colorado. The Grand Valley is a diverse place. Not everyone eats the same thing. What have you learned about catering to the diversity of families in this valley? Um, We're working very hard to do that and social justice to all. Um, That meaning having a little bit more Spanish items. And those are the things that the Choice Pantry would be able to even accommodate more. Because I really don't know who's in that car getting food to be able to give them the pieces. We offer many things, but the Choice Pantry will be able to really highlight their ethnicities and their cultures. You teach cooking classes. Why? Um, because when I first took this job, my first Thanksgiving, I gave people a frozen turkey and some of them did not know what to do with a frozen turkey. And so, you know, if you need to learn how to cook cheaper so that your food goes farther, instead of buying a box of chicken nuggets, buy a whole chicken and make multiple meals. On the question of quality, is there stuff you say no to? Oh, yes. Um, I am very particular about what we give to our clients. We have a rule. If you will not eat it and serve it to your family, you will not give it to my families. Even when you pack my bags to make food for people, I do not want you throwing my cans and disrespecting my can of corn because I feel that's disrespecting my clients. I don't want you disrespecting my can of corn. That's such an image. Some people have a lot of hard things they have to go through, and I don't want them to have the hard thing here. I want them to be empowered and loved and respected, as everyone deserves. Are you tearing up a bit? 
I am. I am. It, it is important. I don't understand why people in this day and age are so grumbly to everybody and rude. Grace and mercy and just loving on people in the grocery store or wherever you are. People ask me, what can they do to change? Well, let's change the world one person at a time. And that means to be nice to everyone. And you have a chance to do that with each person who shows up, I guess. I do. I'm very blessed. I'm honored. I have the best job in the world. I get to love on grandmas that are raising their grandchildren. I get to love on moms. I get to hold dads when they're crying because they don't have enough money. Those things are important. And I make a difference to people. And I'm grateful for that. Does this give you a front row to those experiencing homelessness? Does it give you a front row seat to those experiencing addiction? It does affect us every day. Um, Today was a closed day here. We were just getting food, and I had one of our um, regular clients come up that is a homeless young lady, and she knew we were closed, but she just thought she might be able to come by. And so she came by and got some food. Her and I talked, and we... We, I hugged her and I thanked her and, and off she went and she has a lot of mental illness and homelessness, but I lightened her day for the day. She was able to get her some food and some crackers and a, a yogurt drink and she was very happy. So was that empowering to her? Very much. Was that world changing? It could be. We never know what those small things will be to someone. Does this work give you a glimpse at the systemic issues that lead and keep people in poverty. I mean, I wonder if there's a part of you that feels like deeper change might change the need for a place like this. Oh, of course, the change needs to happen. I mean, the change is great. It's the cost of living. It's the income. It's better facilities for mental illness and addictions here. Um, When I have to call for help for some of those people, I just am so disheartened that I don't have very good options to help them. So wait, you're the person who might make that call? Oh, yes. I I make calls often. I've called um, on different situations when I feel that there's something unsafe. But we're all fighting. Anyone that's out there, law enforcement, mental health, Everyone knows the situation needs to be better. But unfortunately, we don't all have that magic wand to fix it. But we all, if we all would just do small things, the magic wand would come together as a whole. What do you do when you have a rough day? Oh, what do I do? I just, I don't have rough days. There's so much more good than bad. I mean, I've had some days where people are very out of control with some like mental illness issues and confusion that gets me frustrated because I can't communicate to them the way they need to be communicated to help them. But my world is good. Do you pray? And what do your prayers sound like if you would share them? Oh, I pray every day. I I start praying in the morning and I hang up at night. My God and I are on the call all day because I need him every moment of the day. My prayers are just that I would have enough and I would be able to say the right things, that I would be his hands, I would have his kind eyes and his soft hands when I touch the client as he is touching them through me. 
And I just pray that I can be a well-done, good, and faithful servant in whatever he puts me in. And he always blesses this food bank with enough stuff. Okay, last question. Your last name. (laughs) Feaster. F-E-A-S-T-E-R. Easter with an F or feast or famine. (laughs) I mean, with this name, I saw it and I thought... Is this woman born for this job? (laughs) That's what it's kind of funny. But yes, I think I was born. I think everyone's mission in life starts out young. And I think my troubles of a youngster with things not as perfect as some people's white picket fence is your start of your mission field. And my mission field is to love people through food. That is Jackie Feaster, who runs the Clifton Christian Church Food Bank near Grand Junction. And we'll be right back with the latest on the plan to release wolves in western Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. State biologists will likely park trucks somewhere here on the western slope, open cages, and release gray wolves in a little more than a year. What we don't know yet are the details, exactly where that will occur, and how many wolves. We also don't know how the state plans to manage those predators once they're in the wild. CPR's Sam Brash has been following the debates over the state's wolf reintroduction plan and joins us with an update. Hi, Sam. Good morning, Ryan. All of this traces back to Prop 114. That was the ballot initiative the Colorado voters narrowly approved in 2020. It calls on Colorado Parks and Wildlife to reintroduce wolves here on the Western Slope by the end of next year. Uh, Sam, is it on track to meet the deadline? As far as I can tell, it appears to be. But as you suggested, a lot needs to happen between now and what biologists call pause on the ground. Uh, So here's a quick breakdown of what's been going on and the process so far. Last year, wildlife managers convened a pair of committees to come up with recommendations for wolf restoration and management. One is focused on biology. The other is really focused on the social and political impacts of wolf reintroduction. Those committees wrapped up their work last month. Now Colorado Parks and Wildlife is going to take all that info and put it together in an official draft wolf reintroduction and management plan. That's set to come out in December, and then we'll have a full round of public hearings. A final plan should be ready to go by next May, and then we'll have wolves reintroduced uh, supposedly somewhere on the Western Slope. Somewhere on the Western Slope at the end of 2023. Okay, so this process presumably leaves ample opportunity for public input. It has already had ample opportunity for public input, and there's going to be even more opportunity for public input. And I think there's an idea behind that. You know, what the state is really trying to avoid is what's happened in northern Rocky Mountain states like Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. The federal government led wolf restoration in that region starting in the 1990s. And it's been a biological success. There are now thousands of wolves across the West, but many wolf advocates even admit it's been a political disaster. They've found that those reintroductions have led to a fierce backlash from hunters and ranchers, and they've pushed Republican legislatures successfully to turn against the species, expanding wolf hunts and lethal control efforts to rapidly reduce the population. 
Okay, so we've seen this unfold in other places, and it provides really important context. If Colorado is going to successfully restore wolves, it can't just worry about wolf biology. It needs to find a way to defuse human wolf politics. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to put it. And the reintroduction initiative itself shows that there's already a big political division over this, especially between urban and rural communities. You know, the Front Range largely voted for wolf reintroduction, but where you are on the Western Slope, 18 of 22 counties voted decisively against it. Is there really any way to ease these tensions? I mean, it occurs to me that once issues get polarized in the U.S. these days, be it abortion, climate change election security, uh, they've tended to stay that way. I think that this issue is going to be contentious no matter what. It's probably going to be polarized no matter what. But I've been speaking to a lot of people serving on these committees that are advising the state on this wolf reintroduction plan, and they really do think there's room for compromise. People like Brian Cruzel, he's the regional executive director for the National Wildlife Federation, and this is a generally pro-wolf, pro-reintroduction group, but he says Colorado can learn a lot from what went wrong in other, in other states. The wolf issue is one that can divide, but this is something that I think we can find some common ground and try to help both wildlife and people thrive here in Colorado. Cruzel served on one of these advisory committees, the Stakeholder uh, Advisory Group, and he says he's been impressed by the compromises they've managed to hash out so far. Oh, let's talk through those. Uh, I mean, you mentioned many ranchers are against wolf reintroduction. Uh, they're worried the predators could feed on livestock. Is there anything the state could do about that? Yeah, and, and that's actually spelled out in the ballot initiative itself. It says that the state needs a way to compensate ranchers for lost livestock. And that's pretty clear how that would work if uh, wolves kill a cow or a sheep. The state, in fact, already has a program in place to just pay the market value to the livestock owner. That seems... Pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. What's trickier is how to deal with indirect losses. So like missing lost livestock or hiring people to watch cow herds at night or even some studies that suggest that, you know, cattle or sheep living near wolves might have a harder time putting on weight. Those are a lot harder uh, to quantify and tougher losses to compensate. So a group of wolf biologists advising the state, they've suggested a menu of options, including like sending checks to ranchers living near wolves um, called pay for presence or paying more than market value, like a multiplier if a wolf kills an animal. And that way it would sort of pay for the indirect losses as well as the direct losses pay for presence, the presence of wolves. What do yeah. ranchers think about those options? I think as far as pay for presence goes, their concern from what I've heard is, you know, what if they are doing more than that check they get say every month pays for? If they're putting up uh, electric fences, hiring a bunch of ranch hands, really having to work overtime, is there some way that they can itemize all those things and get compensation for that rather than just a set amount that they kind of have to work into their budgets and go from there? Okay, what about hunters? Are there any ideas to address their concerns that more wolves would mean fewer game animals? 
Yeah, this is a trickier question. The groups advising Colorado on wolf policy looked at impacts in other states, and they found it's not clear if wolves have reduced the overall population of elk, deer, and moose, say in you know, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, but they have had smaller impacts on local game animal populations, and that can be a big deal for a specific hunter or an outfitter who always you know hunts on the same little parcel of private or federal land. And the group says the state should really get ahead of those problems. In fact, uh, they looked across all these other states and found that uh, complaints from outfitters were a big reason the state legislatures turned against wolf populations. And they're suggesting maybe the Colorado should look at different ideas like a compensation program for hunters and outfitters as well. well. Sam, thanks so much for this update, uh, a story I know that we'll continue to follow. And when I say we, I mean you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I got it. Keep paying attention. Thank you. Sam Brash, climate and environment reporter for CPR News, who indeed is leading our wolf coverage as the state prepares to reintroduce the species. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour in Palisade, where winemakers must adapt to climate change. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. About a million Coloradans have dealt with chronic pain. It can lead to addiction, death, and even thoughts of suicide. But some Coloradans have found new solutions. I feel much more like myself again. I'm much more like the person my wife fell in love with. Conversations with people fighting for relief from chronic pain in the latest episode of Colorado In-Depth. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Wine won't be the same because of climate change. Grapes, of course, are influenced by temperature, the availability of water, even wildfire smoke. To see how vintners are adapting and how consumers might have to as well, I headed to Palisade, Colorado wine country, where I met an innovator, a relative newcomer, Kaibab Sauvage. He's with Sauvage Spectrum, a label that, as you'll hear, partially owes its existence to a changing climate. Kaibab, it's nice to meet you. Ryan, nice to meet you. What are we holding? These are frosés. Frosés? Yes. On a day when it's going to reach 103 degrees... A frosé seems in order. So this is what? So this is our wine mixed with um, puree from peaches that we grow, and uh, we make them in a slushy machine. Part of the story here is diversifying. I mean, you grow grapes, you also grow peaches. I imagine that's helpful given that agriculture can be so unpredictable. Absolutely, it is. It's huge. Um, we started with just grapes, and we, we quickly saw that the crops were too inconsistent, and so then we diversified into um, tree fruit, which also can be inconsistent. And then more recently, we launched the winery, so we have three levels of diversification. Is that what it takes to survive? I believe so, yes. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of people not be able to hang on into this industry because it's challenging. It's farming, it's hard work, and it's unpredictable. Speaking of the heat... Uh, Indeed, it's going to reach 103 degrees on the day that we are recording this. High temperatures all week. What is the effect of climate change, specifically heat, on a winery? 
Well, it's fascinating. It's really hard on the guys because it's hot out there. And so we have to set the schedule completely different. We start early and we try to get done as soon as we can because heat's hard on people. But we're seeing it change the numbers on the grapes too. We're seeing an earlier harvest because of the heat. It's advancing, ripening. And it's also creating lower alcohol wines. There's also less of a difference between the highs during the day and the lows at night. It just doesn't get as cool. That's right. That diurnal shift, we're not seeing it this year. And that's a huge part in retaining the acidity in the wines. And so by not having that diurnal shift, we're losing our acids, which means we have to pick earlier at lower sugar levels. And by doing that, we're going to end up with lower alcohol wines. Lower sugar levels mean lower alcohol wines. That's right. Fascinating. And, and is there any way to compensate for that? Or you just have to say, that's it? I mean, in theory, you could ameliorate, they call it, and add sugar. But we don't like to play with the numbers like that. And so we're going to make a low-alcohol wine, and it's the season it is. I mean, that's the terroir of a region is you can manipulate wines, or you can let it be the true expression of the area you're in. And so... That's what we believe in doing. In that way, wine can be an expression of a place. It can also be very much an expression of the climate and the climate change of a place. Absolutely. Huh. Aren't we in one of the most elevated wine-growing areas as well? We're in one of the higher regions in the world, absolutely. There's some vineyards here at close to 7,000 feet. Yeah. We're around 4,700 feet here in Palisade, so... And we're not far from the Colorado River. That's huge. That's the only reason we can farm here. That's your water source. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we are in a very significant drought. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, the federal government is uh, coming in and saying to Colorado River water users, you got to have a plan for a world with less water. How does that affect you as a grower? Well, it's huge. I mean... Grapes are already a very uh, water-conscious crop. Really? Peaches, for example, use probably maybe 30 to 40% more water. Huh. And then, like, even a hay field is going to be using almost probably 80% more water. And um, we have taken steps to conserve water. We've converted from flood irrigation to micro-sprinklers. And so we're trying to mitigate these things all along the way. We use soil moisture meters so that we're not over-irrigating. Are there ways in which the heat benefits you? There are. So certain varieties that struggle to ripen, it allows them to ripen sooner and so we can get full maturity on them. Does that mean you could grow different kinds of grapes here then? Absolutely. So grapes have seasons that they come in. So Chardonnay is a very early grape. Cabernet Sauvignon is a very late grape. And so maybe Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't always reach maturity here, but on a year like this, it will have really nice flavors. Oh, interesting. Now, we've spoken of heat. Maybe we should talk about the opposite of that, and that is also a threat to growers, and that is freezing. Cold. To what extent, then, does climate change play a role in the risk of freezing? It does, yeah. As we warm up, we're less likely to see these frost events Uh midwinter. If we hit negative 5 in January, which we can at times, most of this classic vinifera won't take it. It will winter kill down to the ground. Is that less likely, then? It would be less likely with a warmer climate, absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. But that doesn't mean you haven't faced your share of freezes. Oh, we've had plenty. Uh, 2013, we lost 75% of our crop. And 2020, we lost probably 90% of our crop because of frost. Ouch. Yeah, hurts. You have, as a result, gone to hybrid grapes. At least a quarter of your grapes are hybrid grapes. Now, 
My understanding is that hybrids were something that uh, old wine families might roll their eyes at. <laughs> Even though you've been in this for decades, you're a relative whippersnapper, <laughs> Kaibab. But talk to me about the role that hybrids can play in the face of unpredictable climate and weather. So hybrids are a great tool for exactly that. A hybrid doesn't necessarily have to be cold hardy. You're selecting a desirable trait and you're isolating it to make those grapes more robust at whatever you need. We happen to have a cold issue here. And so we're looking to places that are colder like Minnesota. Wait, there's wine in Minnesota? <laughs> there is. They okay. have a very robust growing region, but they're not growing varieties you've ever heard of. They're growing these obscure varietals that they created, Petite Pearl, Verona, Aramella, Vignole. These are all varieties the most traditional wine consumers have never heard of or tried. Mm-hmm. And they're missing out because they're delicious and they're so good and we're pioneering them here. For the cold hardiness in that case. Well, we planted them for the cold hardiness and then we had to find out what to do with them in the winery because they don't behave like traditional wine grapes. They, they have personalities all their own. And I think that's what you had mentioned traditionally they didn't like those varieties because they didn't behave the same way. And so even, for example, in France, a lot of these grapes that were growing are illegal, which is... Illegal? (laughs) It's illegal to grow them. Yes, the government won't allow them to grow these varieties because they want to protect the regions, you know, the more premier growing regions in France. Huh. Do you face rolling eyes from your neighbors here in Palisade for some of these varietals? We definitely do. We started planting these after the 2013 frost, and then we had five back-to-back bumper crops, and I couldn't sell these varieties. Nobody would give them a chance, and that's part of the reason we have a winery. Ah, is because you had to produce your own wines as opposed to giving them to others who would produce them. So, as a farmer, we're very proud of our product, right? Yeah. We couldn't sell them. I didn't want to dump them on the ground, and so we started freezing them Speaking of freezes, we would take them to a commercial freezer and we had about 40 tons of grapes we froze because we didn't have a winery yet. And I worked on selling those grape varieties and um, there just wasn't a market for them. And so huh. I partnered with Patrick and we launched Savage Spectrum. This is Patrick Matuszewski. Correct, Patrick Matuszewski. We're yes. going to meet him in just a bit. But I understand we're going to do a little measuring. Is that right? Yes. And so going back to... Um, this early advanced ripening, as we get closer to harvest, we need to check in on parameters. There's kind of three key parameters we look at. We're going to measure two of those today. We're going to measure the bricks, which is a fancy word for percent sugar in solution. So say it were 20 bricks, there's 20% sugar in that grape. And sugar is important if you like the kick. It is. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're going to have lower sugars this year, like we were discussing. 60% of the sugar turns into alcohol. So at 20 bricks, you're going to have a uh, 12% alcohol. A 12% alcohol. And what else are we going to measure? Uh, pH. We're going to look at pH. Um, Is that a soil thing? No, it's the pH of the grapes. Uh And so depending on what you're making, like a traditional sparkling wine, you'd be looking for pH around 3. A rosé, 3.3 maybe. A red, 3.5. That's kind of our numbers. And as ripening advances, the pH goes down and the bricks go up. Good wine really has to be just right, doesn't it? It's kind of Goldilocks. Goldilocks, indeed. And you have to be adept, too, because not every year's the same. And so to consistently produce good wine with these 
the challenges of climate change is very difficult. And we're not going to make exactly the same wine every year. And the consumer needs to understand that. But <gasps> it needs to be a good, balanced wine is key. It's fascinating you say that because when I find a good wine, my instinct is... I want this all the time, the exact same way, never change. And you're telling the consumer, especially in the face of climate change, you've got to change. Well, they just have to be more open. Uh-huh. Maybe not change, but understanding that this affects everyone. And, you know, maybe you're going to find that it changes the wine in a positive way that you didn't realize and you like and enjoy. Lower alcohol for one. It's good for all of us. <laughs> To get to the grapes, Kaibab Sauvage and his business partner, Patrick Matashevsky, climbed into a pedicab with me. These bike taxis are finding a foothold in Palisade. Patrick, what's all the netting I've been seeing over the grapes? Uh, so these guys are putting the bird netting up um, because the, the birds are attracted to the grapes. Once they, they're they, like us. They are, they, and and Kaibab can tell you all about how they evolved with the grapes. So what happens is, you know, when the grapes are first um, on the vine, they're so acidic. You, you wouldn't want to eat them. The birds don't want to eat them. What's going to happen is that they're going to go through verasion, and they start changing color, and that signifies that the sugar is starting to go up. That acid is dropping out and the birds are very hungry. So that, that's about the time where they start eating the, the grapes if we don't net them. Okay, and we know that that whole process is happening earlier, right? It is. Yeah. We are in this pedicab, and we're heading away now from your wine tasting room, which is to say that it's a sort of checkerboard of vineyards, huh? Yes, and the, the way they've done it, it's everything is planted very specific to the varietal to that microclimate in, the, in that exact area. So that's why you notice, um, you know, we have nine acres at the Sauvage Block over there, Savage Block, um, but that, that's great for reds. You might find the whites up a little bit higher. You might find them a little bit farther west. So it, wow. it, it's just very specific. We're talking what grows where. the difference um, of, of city blocks, really, as microclimates. Correct. That's very correct. I mean, there, there's all types of uh, geographic differences. You know, you, you find these um, little like sinks. You find these kind of rolling hills. You see the mesas. So the, the temperature differential is, is quite vast in this very, very small area. What grapes are we headed for? Right now, we're going to look at uh, Harry's Vineyard, we call it, and that's going to be the Vignet, which you saw me loading in the press earlier. So we're actually juicing that out, but we're really excited to taste the Syrah because we think it's about ready. I've got to ask you about your name, Kaibab Sauvage. Kaibab, I associate with the Grand Canyon. You got it, yeah. Um, that's where it's from. It's the Kaibab Plateau. Uh-huh. My uh, dad was a river rafter in the late 70s and loved the Grand Canyon, spent a lot of time in that area and chose it as my namesake. You want the juice, though, don't you? I want the juice. Well, <laughs> more than the alcohol. <laughs> so um, there's a rumor about where my name comes from. Um, my dad had a late fall float down the Grand Canyon. My mom came and picked him up. That night, they camped on the Kaibab Plateau. It snowed. Nine months later, Kaibab Snow Sauvage was born. Your middle name is Snow. It is. <laughs> <laughs> While we wait to get to the grapes, I think of another aspect of climate change, and that's fires. We certainly witnessed 
the interplay between fires and wine growing in California, smoke even. To what extent are you mindful of that in Palisade? Wildfires, I mean, as a lot of people have seen in the, in the media, are a huge issue because we can get something called smoke taint. So that wildfire smoke can get into the grape skins at a certain point of maturation, and um, it'll carry over into the wines. And so <gasps> you'll get a smoke taint in your wines. And it, Is it a good one or a bad one? Uh, not really. Kind of like a campfire or an ashtray, so not really a desirable characteristic. Yeah, I don't think I want to be describing a wine as having an ashtray finish. Uh-huh. So you can't prepare for that, can you? You're, you're completely subject to the whims of the wildfire and the smoke. You are, absolutely. And so you're going to, um, all you can do is, is react to it in the winery and, and take steps to minimize that. If you know you have smoke tank in a red wine, it's probably not, you're not going to make a red wine. You're going to try to keep it off the skins and you'll be making a rosé that year. Because red wine spends more time with the skins. That's what makes it red. Correct. So yeah. you're making lighter wine so it spends less time in the smoky skin. Right. That's how we're mitigating it. Fascinating. And the whites who, that don't normally see skin contact will tend to be just fine. It's the reds we worry about with smoke taint. We talked about the Colorado River being really a life force for you, but of course, one of the largest reservoirs in Colorado is the snowpack. Absolutely, it is. Um, rain goes away quickly. It's the snowpack in the mountains that slowly melts and feeds the Colorado River all year is what keeps us alive and and you know we're dry here we're high desert we get 10 inches of rain a year so without the river in colorado we would have no agriculture and so you keep your eyes on the snowpack absolutely do you have water rights you must and how were those to negotiate so colorado has very good water rights palisades very fortunate we had some very visionary um people who who set up the irrigation canals here and most our water rights are tied to the ground so you can't sell them it ensures our ground will stay in agriculture for as long as it can does it make sense to grow grapes here absolutely I mean, we, we talked about all the obstacles all the challenges are there times you want to just throw your hands up it's challenging, but I think anything worthwhile is, and, and it's a passion that we do it and we love it. Do you struggle with it? Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, every year we have different challenges, and I think that's the hardest part is being able to adapt. It's, it, there's, there's issues every year, but they're different issues every year, mm -hmm. and we have to figure those out. And you're asking the consumer to come with you, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> the cyclist pedaling us uphill to the vineyard, God bless him, is Mark Williams of Palisade Pedicab. He has a fleet of six bike taxis offering carbon-neutral wine tours. Mark, how are your legs feeling? Feeling great. Oh, wow, really? With six people in this cart? Photographer, yeah. producer, guests, host, We're engineer? Early in the day, I got about 12 more hours of riding today. Yeah. We're recording this in the morning, and you're just getting warmed up. Yeah. Mark, how much does climate change play into why you do what you do? Uh, pretty much, yeah, it's the main reason I do this, actually. Um, yeah, I like operating in a way that, that is a net positive for the community I live in and the environment and everything else. So, yeah, and we're totally uh, human and solar-powered, which is pretty awesome. Oh, these are also solar-powered? 
Yeah, so we've got, we use lithium batteries to power our motors, and I charge them overnight with uh, solar power. So you're getting a little bit of assistance from the batteries. Yeah, it does about half the work. So I'm not suffering up here. It's not as hard as it looks. We arrive at the vines Kaibab Sauvage and his business partner, Patrick Matashevsky, want to check up on. We're going to head over to the Syrah grapes right now. The Syrah grapes. And those are... Well, they're typically a Rhone varietal, so they came out of France, and we grow them here. They, they're kind of rustic, dusty. They have more gamey flavors as opposed to that just fruit bomb. Oh, I, I love the idea of describing a grape as gamey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and of course, it works with that kind of food, too. So really great grape to make, and a lot of times... You know, you might make it kind of whole cluster. You might leave that, that cluster, that whole grape intact and then just go from there, you know, kind of kind of a hands-off approach on it sometimes. Hmm. Is it just birds that like the grapes? We get a lot of pressure from different animals, uh, raccoons, squirrels, um, even coyotes get into them once in a while. It's, it's pretty amazing. Everything seems to like grapes. Bears? Bears, absolutely. You'll see bears? Yeah, they'll tear our nets up sometimes to get into the grapes and eat them. It's a little scary in a grape row when you look down at it and see a bear because there's only one way to go. <laughs> the, the raccoons. Yeah. They, they took our Malbec harvest last year. They ate the whole crop. Yeah. Well, they have good taste. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Expensive taste, that's for sure. So here we are at the Syrah grapes. You're going to lift on, the nets, the bear nets. Oh, we're going to climb nets. underneath. you got to get under the yeah. nets. Yep. Okay. Yeah, watch your hat. Sometimes you kind of put your hand up high. And so typically what we would do, we're going to do a condensed version for you guys, is we're going to walk. We would walk three or four rows like this under the net, and we would randomly take a berry sample. So we're getting a random sample that's representative of the entire crop. Um, we're going to take a shortcut today and pick a nice representative cluster that we'll pick. You've taken, oh, probably 20 grapes there. And, and they grape. are, they're dusty looking. They're kind of opaque. And so we bring a Ziploc bag to take our sample in. You wanna hold that? And then we're gonna juice them. Oh, you're gonna juice them in the Ziploc bag. Little Lucille ball action, but with your hands. <laughs> you got it. So yeah, we're looking to produce that juice, get that skin contact in there. So right now, it's like we're making a rosé. But if we were to leave it on the skins, you're going to get it would become a red. full-blown red wine. So yeah, we're, we're about there. Enough to kind of pull a sample. Yep. Get so, your refractometer. So yeah, we've got the trusty refract. A portable version. Yes. And so that measures the solids in solution. And so what it's going to tell us is the sugar's in solution. And it's got a little scale in there you can see different numbers on. So we'll put a little drop on there, and then we're gonna look through the eyepiece. Pouring the juice into a channel at one end of the device. You gotta hold it up in the light, and there's, um, it's kind of like a... Uh, and now you're using it almost like a telescope. Yeah, and what I'm reading here is about 23, 
23 and a half almost. So. And the light is helping you determine that. Yeah, with the refract, it, it's going to allow us to actually read that graph um, that's that's in there to, to measure it. And what is that? Is that a good number? You know, um, 23 and a half in, you know, the way I was taught, that's that's kind of like your, your white grape numbers. Um, and what you would do is you pick your whites at 23, you pick your reds at 26. But there's a climate change factor here. Um, I'm very interested in watching the pH and our, our last numbers that we ran last week showed that the pH was shooting up the TA the acid was starting to drop out so with that being said it might just be a little bit lower alcohol wine which is completely on trend with what the market wants well how soon until the grapes that we are standing next to we need to pick these we tomorrow. need to pick them <laughs> we'll pick them tomorrow boom yeah we have an answer there it is. You guys want to try them? Most people sure. are blown away by how sweet wine grapes are. They think, you know, they Oh my goodness, it's like grapes. eating jam. Uh-huh. When someone says a wine is jammy. That's based on partially when it's harvested. The longer you let them hang, more of those jammy characteristics develop. And Syrah can definitely have a jammy flavor to it. Certain varieties have different profiles, and Patrick described a bunch earlier, but these ones are... Wow. And seeds, you can look at the seeds. That's part of the phenological maturity. You've just spit them into your hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a messy process making wine. <laughs> We're, we bite them. Check for crunchiness. You can see that brown. See how that's fully brown? There's just a little green there. A mature grape berry is going to have a fully brown seed. And so we're looking at, when we berry sample, we're sampling the grapes too. We're looking at the phenolics, the flavors. We're looking at the seeds. We're using, you know, as many of our senses as we can to establish what kind of wines we're, these are going to make. And how close they are to harvest. Well, I hate to say it, but we've got a jam. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, both of you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Kaibab Sauvage and Patrick Matashevsky are adapting to climate change at Sauvage Spectrum Winery in Palisade. And that is Colorado Matters for today. L'chaim to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner.